Healthcare has a way of claiming things anew. That could be said to be the case with community health workers who have been part of the fabric of care delivery in the U.S. and in plenty of other countries for decades, even if the titles haven't always been the same and the importance of the role hasn't always been fully recognized. If you're joining us today and you're a community health worker, or CHW for short, you are certainly aware of all the attention CHWs are receiving as part of a growing focus on population health. If you're part of an organization utilizing CHWs, thank you, and any CHWs joining us as well, for being among our teachers and exemplars today alongside our guests. We're at a turning point with CHWs, as we are with others who can better support patients and bridge gaps between healthcare and the community. And we're going to examine this moment of possibilities for CHWs, including the necessary levers, training, and sustainable models. And that's all coming up on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We offer this biweekly, and also you can catch it later on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and as many of you know, I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. We have some great experience and expertise assembled for you, and I hope you find something over this next hour about community health workers that you can run with and act upon. So introductions coming up, but first here's IHI's John Gothier. He's here in the studio with some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us on WIHI. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items today to point out to make it, help everybody make the most of today's program. Uh, on the right side of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about all the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens the floor up for questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. Uh, if you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection, we recommend calling in on the phone. But if you experience any audio issues, please let me know in the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. But if that keeps going on, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct, a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Mitch. All right. Thanks so much, John. And don't forget, if you like to tweet, include at the IHI our Twitter handle in your tweets, and we can bring others into the conversation. So joining us by phone out in California, we've got Kevin Barnett. He's a senior investigator at the Public Health Institute. For the past 20 years, he's been engaged in research and field work in hospital community benefit and health workforce diversity. Kevin currently serves as the principal investigator of something called Alignment for Health Equity and Development, and that's a national initiative uh, acronym AHEAD. Welcome, Kevin. So glad you can be with us. 
Thank you, Madge. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Fantastic. I also want to welcome by phone Dr. Shreya Kangovi. She's an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine and the executive director of the Penn Center for Community Health Workers. She led a multi-stakeholder team that designed what's called IMPACT, and that's a model of care in which CHWs support high-risk patients to set and achieve health goals. Welcome, Shreya. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. And one more person on the phone. He's out in Worcester. We'll get him in here at some point soon. Darrell Fox is currently a community health worker as well as a health equity and public health consultant. His areas of focus are CHW leadership development, policy training, education, and financing. Darrell has over 25 years of experience as a CHW, including 20 years at Children's Hospital in Boston, where he worked with adolescents and young adults living with or at risk for HIV. Welcome, Darrell. Thank you. Honored to be here. All right. Fantastic. And I want to acknowledge that Dr. Heidi Befferis, who has had decades of experience with community health worker programs, I'm sorry she's not joining us today as planned. She had a last-minute major conflict. She apologizes. We apologize and send regrets. We'll tap her experience at another time on WHI. But rest assured, she also helped in our preparation for this show. And as you'll see in our resources, and it may pop up on the screen at some point as well, um, she wrote a really, really interesting uh, article in Health Affairs called Bridging the Gap, a Community Health Program Saved Lives, then Closed Its Doors. This is about um, a program called PACT, which does still exist in some form at the Justice Resource Institute. Heidi, though, wanted to capture some of the issues, particularly around financing uh, that uh, and soft money that uh, led to that program closing in that form. So we're going to get underway. Think of your questions and comments for our guests. Thanks for the tremendous response response to this topic that gives me an idea of things that we can continue to do uh, in this area with CHWs and sort of the non-traditional workforce. So, Kevin, I'm going to start with you. I always love going to Kevin for framing. And uh, I think what we're going to do with Kevin is we're going to put up also a nice slide that Darrell created for us, which has this great definition of what is a community health worker. And by this, I think with this slide there, um, let's ask you, Kevin, do we all mean the same thing when we're talking about community health workers today? And if you could also, as secondarily, frame for us what forces are at work right now that are driving what we'd have to say is fresh interest in CHWs, uh, particularly in the United States. Thanks, Kevin. Sure. Let, let me start. Just a couple comments on the, on the slide that you've put up because um, it is uh, what I believe it captures are, are really three important dimensions. One is this notion that as a person that's a trusted member and or has unusually close understanding of, of the, of the communities. This is, this is a central dimension of the community health worker and an understanding of their role. Um, they have to, have to have that clear base, that clear, uh, uh, uh understanding of, of the particular community that's being served. The second is, the second dimension of this is really about how to facilitate, uh, uh, people's access to and optimal use of available services. The last and the third, and, and, and I think the less understood understanding and role of community health workers is their role in really facilitating and in advancing broader health improvement through, through outreach and education, but through, through building 
uh, social support systems through advocacy and understanding some of the broader drivers of health. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a relatively long definition, but I think it captures the scope uh, of issues that we look to community health workers to serve. We have been all over the map uh, in defining um, in, in creating titles for people that, for all intents and purposes, serve a community health worker function. We've called, we call them navigators, community health educators, peer health educators, uh, lay health advisors, promotores de la salud, uh, and, and doula, for example. Um, um, so there's, there are a broad range of terms used. Often those terms are driven by the categorical funding source um, uh, behind those. And, um, uh, and Heidi would, uh, would have commented more about that, and we'll touch on, on this issue uh, a little later in the program. The, the real driving force uh, that has uh, awakened the interest uh, uh, among mainstream providers in the engagement of community health workers is fundamentally the Affordable Care Act. Um, and, and part of that, of the Affordable Care Act and why the healthcare industry broadly is so supportive of this was the recognition that our system of fee-for-service financing uh, created uh, uh, pernicious incentives, um, that is, to conduct procedures and fill beds uh, and did not give attention to and or incentivize, in fact, keeping people healthy and out of our institutions. So we are now engaged in a process as we uh, move from a focus on uh, volume to value, as it is often often said, is, is really about uh, healthcare organizations increasingly assuming interest, or I, I'm sorry, assuming risk for keeping people healthy and out of their institution. And that necessarily requires us to think not as, uh, in essence, body shops where we just provide acute care medical services, but we actually do better financially if we manage to invest strategically in the preventive uh, services and activities that keep people, keep people out of our institutions. So that's the real driver. We have in many of our communities, we have uh, federally qualified health centers uh, and other clinics that have for many years engaged community health workers and promotores as part of their, of their team-based care provision process as well as their broader place-based community health improvement activities. Uh, and what's happening now is um, uh, the, the broader spectrum of healthcare providers are beginning to discover uh, that this is going to be an important way that we engage uh, and transform ourselves moving forward. So yeah. those are the, the real key forces driving that. Thanks, Kevin. That's super helpful. That's a great uh, way to get us going. Uh, thanks for that. We'll come back to you in just a few minutes. Uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Shreya Kangovi, I want to come over to you now uh, out of Pennsylvania to tell us about the Penn Center for Community Health Workers. And uh, if you go to that website, and maybe Vicki here will put that link in here, and all these things will be captured on the resource document that we post to the website. But what a rich environment that is, um, and it really reflects some very, very uh, deliberate work and trying to also share the learning. 
So I'm really curious how you came up with this studying successes and failures, and you came up with this model called IMPACT, and that is one of the things we want to talk about today, models that people should know about. So welcome again, uh, Shreya. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, uh, so the mission of our center, the Penn Center for Community Health Workers, I'll start with that, is uh, really to dovetail on what Kevin was talking about, to improve health in high-risk populations through the effective use of CHWs. I think the key words here, high-risk populations, you know, we focus on the low-income communities that are really at high risk across the board for the outcomes that health systems are increasingly being held accountable for. Um, the care comes from community health workers, people from within those communities, and we use science to understand and improve our outcomes so that we're delivering the most effective care possible. And so we serve this mission through research. We've, as Madge mentioned, um, used a range of different kinds of methods from qualitative interviews, you know, in-depth interviews with patients, all the way to pragmatic randomized control trials um, to design, test, and refine the impact model. Um, and though our work grew from research and continues to grow from it, we're also now directly um, funded from Penn Medicine and other payers to deliver um, the impact intervention to about 1,500 patients annually just as part of routine care. So it's now baked in financially. Um, and then finally, as Madge mentioned, you know, we're on this call. We know we're by no means the only organization or community dealing with these issues, so we're committed to sharing learning through tools, training, and technical assistance. Um, I can talk about, you know, briefly how we got here and why we chose the path that we did. And we really used two streams to design impact. One was we wanted to start by talking with patients themselves. You know, they're the experts. Um, we started back in 2010 and conducted hundreds of these in-depth interviews on porches, hospital bedsides, um, talking to patients that most often are left out of the conversation, um, low-income, marginalized patients. And we asked them what they thought made it hard to stay healthy and what we ought to be doing differently. And then we took all of these, you know, um, hundreds of interviews and we coded them. We made a long list of all the barriers that patients told us that they were facing. Um, and this list was like four pages long. And for each barrier, we said, well, what intervention step would address that problem? You know, so for example, a lot of patients um, said that the minute they enter the healthcare system, nobody's listening to them and they're being judged. And so we said, okay, well, the first step might be that a community health worker conduct an open-ended strengths-based interview. Then we went two steps further and said, what traits would somebody need to have to do that and what skills? And we kind of did this row by row until we came up with a comprehensive design map for what ultimately the intervention was going to look like and then what traits we were going to look for in hiring and what skills we would train on. So we wanted to listen to our patients, and we did that, but we also really wanted to learn from history. Um, as Madge mentioned, community health workers are not new. In fact, they are quite old. They date back at least to the 1800s. And um, it turned out, you know, during this long history, most community health worker programs have failed. And I really want to emphasize that. Um, despite this being a wonderful idea, a lot of programs have tried and failed to move the needle on these hard outcomes. And so we spent a while talking to experts um, internationally and nationally, many of them are on this call, and trying to understand what, caused, what was the difference between the programs that succeeded and those that 
failed. And it boiled down to five key elements. Number one, hiring. You know, this is fundamentally a human intervention. It's only as good as the people. And it's really about their interpersonal skills, not where they went to school or their credentials. It's about, you know, personality traits. So programs need really good hiring protocols. Second, uh, you know, the programs that succeeded had clear work practice manuals for, you know, things like caseload, supervision, documentation. It was written down and there was program level infrastructure, not just a community health worker flapping in the breeze in the clinic. Um, the third element was that the programs were plugged in and integrated to what was going on with doctors and nurses offices. There were uh, patient-centered models rather than just disease-specific uh, programs that you know, couldn't translate across settings. And then finally, you know, the programs that endured had a rigorous um, scientific proof behind them. They were evidence-based. So we kind of took the design streams from what patients told us and what history told us and merged them together to create the impact model. Um, and I'll, maybe I'll pause there and I can give you more information about how we addressed each of those historic factors in the design of impact um, as the call progresses. All right, that sounds fine. I think what's interesting, you talk about the lessons from history, Shreya, and John, if you want to advance to the uh, the next thing, what I, I think you, you, this clearly makes this uh, very strong historical uh, connection uh, between, so I think that's what's sort of interesting uh, is some of the fundamentals, because of course we think of today as super complex and often very hard to find what are the key ingredients. So I, I just want to call that out. I um, also want to mention, Shreya, and, and our audience, or just highlight the fact, if you see the reference at the bottom of this uh, impact slide, um, that this comes from an article in JAMA. And Shreya gave me a, a number of really interesting links to articles uh, that she's written with some others. There's one, John, maybe show the one that has to come from, where was this, in the New England Journal of Medicine just in June of this past year from rhetoric to reality, and there are some other very um, nice pieces. So, Shreya, before we turn to Durrell, I want to just ask you, um, you know, in terms of if you had to just tick off, um, what would you say? I, I, everyone remembers on WHI, I asked people to condense and boil things down uh, to fit into this format on the show, but what would you say are the key components of the model, if, if that's not putting you on the spot there? No, not at all. I, I think it goes back to those five things. So we have really clear processes for who we hire. Um, and, again, they weigh the interpersonal skills. So it's meet and greets. It's structured interviews with cases to see how people would handle uh, situations, make sure that they're empathic and good listeners. So I think hiring is key. Um, I think having clear manuals, um, not just for what community health workers do, but for what their managers do, what directors do, this is crucial. I mean, we think about community health worker programs, and it, it's, it really kind of is just we think about the community health worker, but um, unless there's that infrastructure of supervision, support, you know, where do they document, what are they doing, what's their caseload, who's guaranteeing that they're safe when they're going out in the field, all of those key questions really need to be clearly laid out in these manuals. And so we have those manuals that are um, incidentally open source and available online. Um, the community health workers do need to maintain their grassroots identity. That's crucial, but they also need ways of being plugged into the formal healthcare system. So 
sending EMR messages, attending rounds um, when they can, um, and using phone calls to communicate with the team, and then having a model that can scale. You know, what we're seeing now, um, which on one hand is great, but on another hand a little worrisome, is that there's maybe, you know, 10,000 flowers blooming each um, payer and hospital and clinic is kind of experimenting with starting their own community health worker program. Um, it, you know, this can lead to tremendous fragmentation, um, so it's probably better if there are programs that can scale across, you know, different settings and different clinics so that patients don't end up with five different community health workers. Um, and then finally, I, I do think we're committed to making sure that this, um, what, whatever we're doing works, and if it doesn't, understanding why. This is really hard work. Um, it seems really logical and easy and kind of like a magic bullet, but um, these are hard needles to move, and so it requires the same proof, I think, that we demand of other parts of the healthcare system. All right. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate your expanding on some of that a bit. And you can see in the left-hand corner of the slide some of the impact of impact, I should say. Um, I also want to remind anyone who is joining just by phone and uh, isn't looking at the visuals that we're describing here, you can um, email info at IHI.org and they'll send them to you um, right now because they have them. Mm -hmm. those, those are our uh, friendly people here at IHI always helping you out via email and phone. So, and these are slides all available um, when you get off the show today and at a link that we put into the chat earlier. All right, Darrell, I want to go to you out in Worcester, Mass. You have 20 years or 20, uh, actually 25 years as a, a community experience as a community health worker, and you've brought that to leadership roles in Massachusetts, nationally, and organizations like the American Public Health Association, many, many endeavors. Darrell has an amazing bio. So thinking about perhaps what you've heard and how the ground is shifting for CHWs right now, there must be a kind of feeling of, well, it's about time, <laughs> perhaps from your perspective. But what are some of the messages you might want to um, get across in terms of what's going to really nurture uh, CHWs and uh, really help sustain uh, their these jobs, uh, the individuals doing them, the patients, and uh, really uh, perhaps hardwiring them in, into many of our care solutions these days? Thanks, Darrell. Yeah, thank you, Madge. I'm, I'm honored to be on this call and, and be a member of the CHW workforce. And I, and I really want to provide some uh, comments and some encouragement to all who are listening to, to truly support CHW leadership and CHW self-determination and all initiatives, um, uh, programs, projects focused on the CHW workforce, uh, our development, our training, our education, and then the critical component that's been really uh, moving forward is around credentialing and reimbursement and or financing. Um, and this really, you know, for me, you know, I was asked to be on this call and talk about a few things. I felt that CHW self-determination and things like uh, people continuing or developing equitable, equitable partnerships with the community health workers, um, they just showed the definition slide. And before I go on, I do want to say that um, it, it really, that definition was a national effort um, to develop a standard occupational code on the federal level for community health workers. So the American Public Health Association Community Health Workers Section worked with CHW networks and associations across this country in the mid-2000s to develop that definition. Um, it's currently uh, being used also as the Department of Labor definition for the federal CHW apprenticeships, and it has been endorsed, adopted, shared, or used by many states and by many CHWs and the organizations that represent them. 
Um, I, I want to go uh, back to, I think they showed a slide about uh, a common theme, which is nothing uh, about us without us, CHW self-determination. And I really think that places that have sowed the seeds of true partnership have seen um, benefits related to uh, services provided to clients, communities, related to the enhancement of the strength of the field. And so I think real and true and equitable partnerships with CHWs, those new to the field, and particularly those who are seasoned, um, is one of those critical components that I have seen provide success, not just for the workforce, but also for the agencies we work for, and most importantly, for the communities and clients we serve. In over two decades as a CHW, I've, I've been engaged in a lot of things, a, busy, a busybody, as some would say, uh, on the local, state, regional, and national level related to CHWs. And I've seen ebbs and flows over these two and a half decades. Um, but over the last five years, I've seen steady and diverse progress and interest in community health workers, our scope of practice, and our core roles. Um, it seems that some have discovered uh, the ability of CHWs to crisscross different systems to be effective and efficient uh, in many ways, um, and also our ability to address the triple aim by enhancing access to care, improving the quality and cultural competence of that care, as well as helping to address issues around the cost of care. And there are several return on investment and other kinds of uh, evidence to prove that. Um, I want to highlight the fact that the CHWs practice, and yeah, the slide you see now in front of you is really kind of that that bridging, and it's, it's bi-directional. Um, it goes in all directions related to CHWs in the center from both, with community being really key to that. Um, um, I want to highlight the fact that we practice in many settings, and I, and I think with all of this focus on health care, on reimbursement, et cetera, sometimes lost in the shuffle are those critical community settings, those youth development, social justice, housing, um, legal advocacy programs. Um, I just want people to know that as we progress the field, we must not forget our brothers and sisters who may not be um, strictly in clinical or healthcare settings because um, they're key to us keeping that. I think I heard earlier that grassroots, organic nature of our field while we do things like credentialing, et cetera. Um, you know, some of the things that have, have gone on um, to Madge and others uh, have been, you know, really around CHWs being included more and more in city, state, federal policies, uh, administrative rules, legislation. You know, you have the Affordable Care Act. You have the National Partnership for Action to Link Health Disparities uh, being operated now um, through the Regional Health Equity Councils. And you have other health equity plans, strategies, um, <coughs> Medicaid amendments, et cetera. CMS innovation models is uh, another one. Um, uh, I'm going to stay focused on this, but on the screen right now, you'll see three links. I'm going to mention a few of those, but I really just wanted to, to, to have this moment of time with you and to share some things that I think are important as we uh, continue this conversation. I think one of the, uh, the new key areas, or maybe not new, but building areas, is really around uh, the inquiry into CHW's role in achieving health equity by addressing the social determinants of health. Um, um, our role in behavioral health and our role in oral health and, our, and truly our ability to be part of the solution to heal some of the ills of health and human service uh, systems. Um, I think some key messages um, that I'd like to say is that, once again, back to the self-determination, also known as Kujijakalia, to those who know that term, uh, and that's 
develop uh, development um, of any programs, initiatives, projects um, have to be done in partnership with CHWs from its inception. I think that's been critical, and I think there have been key successes that we can highlight related to folks who have who have really embraced that. Um, I urge you to support and, and, and strengthen um, the development of CHW leadership as a way to, to truly uh, uh, build up our profession. Um, uh, and uh, I also urge people to explore, develop, share, and read and access the growing evidence base for CHWs, including um, our uh, our uh, impact on outcome, health outcomes, positive impact on health outcomes. If you go to the RHEC, which is that first link on there, you will see there are many, many articles, but in all honesty, I can't keep up, and even this week there were some key uh, articles that were um, shared uh, with some of us. So um, I think that's, you know, in closing, I'll just say a couple other remarks, and that is there's a, there's a critical meeting coming up, and that's the American Public Health Association annual meeting, where there'll be any of you guys who are going there, I urge you to attend um, sessions related to CHWs. There are multiple sessions around the conversations that we're having here today, uh, health equity, population health, social justice, community development, credentialing certification, and uh, the critical piece around sustainability around exploring advanced payment models for CHWs. There's also something that's exciting coming up, which is uh, the findings from a, a key report uh, from the National Community Health Worker Common Core Project. Um, there'll be a lot of talk in sessions at APHA, but right after that, there'll be a report released. And it's really been a way to kind of operationalize equitable partnerships with CHWs as they built in a CHW network review process that is guiding and leading efforts to build this national consensus on our core roles and competencies. I urge all of us to continue these conversations. There are many forums that I have not mentioned um, that I think provide us the opportunity to continue this. And once again, thank you for um, having CHWs be part of the experience and leading and guiding the experience. Thank you. Thank you so much, Darrell. I really appreciate it. We'll be um, thinking about the APHA meeting coming up, and also um, we'll keep our eye out. Maybe I'll learn more from you about that report, um, and we can make sure it's in the resource document where folks might look for that when it comes out. But thank you very much. Before we go to chat, and I want to thank Darrell and Shreya and Kevin, all three, uh, John, bring up this one about an IOM discussion paper, and this is going to just bring me back to Kevin for just a minute, Kevin. Um, you're a co-author on this paper called Bringing Community Health Workers into the Mainstream of U.S. Healthcare, and maybe just take a couple of minutes uh, to say what you think this represents. This came out in February. I think it's crisscrossing some of the themes that we're already talking about, but it seems to be trying to also nudge something forward. How would you characterize uh, the importance of this report and the issues uh, therein, Kevin? Thanks. Sure. Um, I guess what I would I would note, I mean, that the core question that you've raised is what what's needed to to accelerate this movement. Um, and I, I would point to a few uh, a few issues at hand that we have to sort through. One um, that is, is that as present, um, we do not have the most of parts of our country are still operating predominantly in a fee-for-service environment. And uh, to, to the degree, and as we move more and more over into that realm of uh, full-risk capitation, it will clearly become uh, 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 
evident to those in the, that are that provide care that there are these these array of factors that they cannot deal with in the care management arena, uh, and increasingly that the community health workers uh, will not only help us manage uh, the care of more complex patients, but begin to look at what are the support structures needed in the community context to address this. So uh, if you if you happen to be, for example, in the state that's not doing the Medicaid expansion, you have to have a high number of uninsured, then in that context, it would be uh, it would behoove you to think about um, how community health workers can help address the concentration of people who come into the emergency rooms frequently, as well as those who you may be paying penalties for because of readmissions uh, for complex conditions after they were discharged, bring them back into the hospital. So finding a way through your community benefit expenditures to think proactively to, in essence, be good stewards of those services should lead you to think about how to engage community health workers. As we look at uh, the expanded engagement um, uh, of community health workers, uh, another key dimension that is important in the acceleration is developing increasing interoperability in our data systems. Uh, we did a study in California looking at uh, the contributions of community health workers to the triple aim objectives. Uh, and what we found was most, if not all, community health centers who were the primarily the entities primarily engaging community health workers could not point to the return on investment. And the primary reason was they did not have access to the hospital utilization data that would tell them whether or not Mr. Rodriguez needed to go to the emergency room last week. So um, this is a critical near-term need while it's it, uh, building interoperability uh, is a complex issue. An important starting point is our ways in which our mainstream providers interact with our safety net institutions, our community health centers, and looking at ways in which to link those data are critically important. Um, one other area is in is in on the issue of training. Uh, uh, we're in the process of looking at this issue in California, thinking in geographic terms about what what sort of training resources are available, to what degree is there alignment in terms of the content, the pedagogical focus, um, and recognizing that we want community health workers that come from particular communities, and it behooves us to think strategically about what kinds of resources are available. And that leads us to leads me to the last dimension of this, which is what are ways in which we begin to think more regionally uh, among our provider organizations about how to build capacity. Um, and we are looking uh, in a number of of regions around the country and how to bring together provider organizations and payers uh, to uh, both uh, co-invest in the training infrastructure for community health workers, um, but also to begin to think about the training, the essential training that is needed for the other members of the team in order to effectively engage community health workers. At the end of the day, this is about how we better work together to address the social determinants of health. And it's important that all members of the team, the clinical team as well as those in the administrative arena of these organizations, understand and uh, and prioritize uh, this as a part of their transformation process. 
Uh, let me stop there. Okay, thank you, Kevin. That's very, very clear. Vicki put in the link uh, to that as well, and I also wanted to draw attention, I mean, to the IOM discussion paper that I had asked Kevin about, and also you can see here Heidi's article uh, about the PACT program in the Boston area. So, first of all, I want to thank all of you on chat for your questions. We're about to go to them right now. I just want John uh, to quickly remind everyone how to chat to all participants. That's maybe what John's going to say. And I thank each of you who may be answering some of your own, some of the questions and providing some of the resources. You're part of our rich environment here. John. That's exactly what I'm going to say. Make sure that at the Sentu bar says all participants when you submit your question. All right. Thanks very much. Okay. So, I'm going to try and sort of run down uh, a lot of different, I'm trying to group some of the themes here. One has to do about optimal payment sources. Uh, a lot of the themes have to do what's the optimal title, what's the optimal role, what's the optimal payment. And I guess I thought I might turn to Shreya for that because Shreya is also saying that their program at the Penn Center is funded in a fee-for-service environment. Uh, so Shreya, why don't you tackle that issue about uh, best ways to, since financing is an issue that can sometimes make or break or um, bedevil some of these issues, uh, how are you making it work financially? Thanks. Sure. So what I'll answer is not the best way to finance it, but just um, how to finance it regardless, I guess, of policy environment or how we approach that. Um, I think that the first thing that we started to do was really make a list of outcomes that were problematic for the people that we cared about. You know, these were outcomes where low-income communities were suffering around the triple aim, whether they were um, high rates of chronic disease, preventable hospitalizations, lack of access to primary care. Um, and for, for each of those outcomes, we also asked ourselves, what is a high-resource stakeholder um, that takes a hit financially when our patients suffer these outcomes? In other words, um, whose bottom line is this outcome affecting? Who might be willing to pay for this if we're able to improve this outcome? So we made this list of outcomes, as I mentioned, you know, preventable hospital admissions. They're bad for patients, but they are also, even in a fee-for-service environment, um, if you have uninsured or Medicaid patients being admitted, um, that is um, a, a financial uh, loss for hospitals. Um, access to post-hospital primary care. That is now called the transitional care management visit, and it's associated with enhanced reimbursements for providers. Um, chronic disease, those are, you know, HEDIS and NCQA measures, et cetera. So we made this list of things that kind of thread the needle between the heart and the dollar sign, we like to call it. Um, and then we basically made sure to track those outcomes in our randomized control trials of the, of the intervention so that once we had the data showing that, hey, you know, we're able to improve HCAP scores or, you know, quality of, uh, of communication by 12%, you said that that was of interest to you, Penn Medicine, and we're moving that. Now would you uh, be interested in paying for it? We're able to make that return on investment financial projection a lot more easily because we had kind of gone through those stages. Um, I don't think that everybody in every program um, in the audience certainly needs to go through those same steps um, and, you know, invent something and do a randomized control. I, in fact, think it's silly for that process to be uh, reinvented. But I do think that programs will have more traction if they use um, 
evidence-based models that have already been demonstrated to move these outcomes. And then you can take that to your CFO of, you know, either I've seen questions about should it be hospital-based, primary care, social service, whatever high-resource stakeholder cares about those outcomes, you can take the evidence to that stakeholder and say, this has been proven to move this needle. Um, let's plug it into a return on investment calculation and then use that as a basis for budget planning. I think that's very interesting and a very systematic way to go about it. So I can imagine folks being very, very interested in that. Um, Shreya, I'm just going to keep you on the spot for just one more second with another question. How do you identify patients that are eligible for the impact practice model? Sure. Um, so again, it's disease and setting agnostic. It, it can work in the inpatient or outpatient setting. Um, and broadly, we look for people who have psychosocial risk, but also have a little bit of medical risk. And practically, the way that we do that is we look at zip code, right? Unfortunately, your zip code is the biggest risk factor for both health and social issues. Um, so we uh, target people who live in high poverty zip codes. Um, who are uninsured or publicly insured and then have some degree of medical risk. And that depends on, you know, the, the location where the program is. If it's a hospital-based program, we look to see have they, you know, is it a patient who's been admitted? If it's an outpatient program, do they have chronic diseases? Or, um, you know, and uh, we also have uh, scaled this now to high-risk pregnant women. So we look for pregnant women who have another medical condition. But broadly, that's the way that it works. Um, and if I can, I'll just tell a little bit about how this can work across these care settings. Um, it's a structured approach, but it's flexible. Um, what happens is that community health workers meet patients um, in, um, you know, the doctor's office or in the hospital setting, or as Darrell mentioned, sometimes in non-healthcare settings, um, such as a community center, or um, we're looking at incarcerated uh, populations. And they, they do the first stage, which is goal setting. They get to know their patients as people. They do that open-ended interview I was talking about. And they ask Mr. Jones, what do you think you're going to need to improve your health? So Mr. Jones can answer with, well, for me, I need to find stable housing and I need to get diabetic test strips. And so they then help Mr. Jones to create action plans for reaching the goals that he's already identified as important. Um, and then in the second stage, they help him to achieve those goals. They're out there in the field getting it done, not just providing information, but being hands-on buddies and, you know, uh, partners in this and then they connect them to long-term supports when the intervention ends. So that's how, because of that, you know, flexible goal-setting stage in the beginning where the patient essentially chooses their adventure, it can work whether you're dealing with a diabetic patient or, um, you know, an asthmatic patient or uh, whatever setting. Okay, thank you very much. Really uh, fascinating and, and very, very helpful and very concrete. We have a number of questions that have to do with um, both optimal role. Darrell, I'm going to uh, flip a few of these over to you in sort of a group way, which is sort of the optimal role for a CHW. And also, to what extent um, people are using different titles. So somebody's asking, what's the difference between CHWs and social workers besides education? Someone's, this person goes on to say, it appears CHWs do similar tasks as a social worker, but utilizing CHWs would be more cost effective. 
there have been some other questions, which is, uh, should medical assistants be trained to be CHWs? Uh, there's a conference that has uh, CHWs slash patient navigators. Um, so I, I don't know. I guess my question to you, Darrell, is optimal role, and do you see um, – is it important to have a really clear distinction between a CHW and some of these other roles, or could we begin to see uh, some of these things kind of blending together in any way? I hope that's not too confusing. Thanks, Darrell. No, those are, those are great questions. I think uh, when I um, talked about the uh, Community Health Worker Common Core Project known as the C3 Project, um, I talked about an effort to build upon work that's been going on for decades around really um, defining, naming the community health worker core skills and core roles. Those core skills and core roles are the foundation of most of the training and education related to CHWs that I know of that's out there. So there's, there's that piece of the component. But the question about, and I saw the emails about the patient navigator, it's, it's, there, there has to be in the movement over the last two decades around synergy and unity when you have a state like including my state of Massachusetts that has done several waves of surveys of the workforce and has found 50 different titles which fall under the CHW scope of practice mm. and or uh, positions where people are demonstrating um, the core roles and competencies of CHWs. And so the, the bottom line is I think there, there has to be synergy and a way to unite because when you're talking about uh, whether you're talking about agency-level policies, administration of programs, you're talking about state, federal uh, programs, et cetera, you truly need to have an understanding of that workforce. And as we talk more and more about sustainability, the, the um, ability to be able to describe some core roles, skills, competencies, to have a definition for that workforce, to demonstrate some of the um, uh, evidence base that I've referred to around the CSW workforce is critical for making the case, as Sharia talked about earlier, making the case with that um, high-resource stakeholder. I'm going to use that term because I'm going to start looking for some of these folks. <laughs> um, but, but, I, but I think that part of the challenge in, that has either helped or, or impeded the progress in the field at times has been the challenges across uh, titles and the fact that we have uh, cyclical categorical funding where it, it 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 means that for this you have to be named a navigator if you if you want to uh, be engaged in the ACA enrollment and outreach um, for this role it's cancer funding so you have to be a patient navigator um, I've seen success in the overall progress in the CHW workforce our outcomes, um, our ability to be effective in places that have been able to embrace those 50 to 60 titles and to have something like, I think Marilyn put the email out, in Massachusetts, the community health worker slash patient navigator uh, conference and synergy operationally on the ground between those workforces and our state, whereas some states, those might be looked at as totally distinct um, entities. There's been a new wave of conversation around peer supporters. Mm-hmm. There is inter- there's a lot of international information. Uh, peers for Progress is a, has been a partner uh, recently working closely with the CHWs or working with uh, the CHW community to try to figure out where are those common places. Yeah. Um, people talk about patient navigation in the world I live in as one of the roles of a community health worker. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, and so that's where 
maybe the distinction needs to happen because if you are a community health worker, one of the things you may do is patient navigator, but if you are a patient navigator who just focuses on that and not the other components of our, our roles and competencies as a CHW, you may not be a CHW. But I think, yeah. you know, this whole thing around self-determination, are people on the ground, particularly in states? I mean, the state-based movements have helped to guide, to seed some of the national movement, and that's the, that's the only way this is going to work. Okay. Um, I think I answered a few of your questions. Yeah, no, you did. I threw a kind of a big one at you. And, and Trey, you may want to weigh in, but I hold on just for a sec. Kevin, I want to come back to you for uh, just a second. Uh, do we still have him, uh, John? Is, is Kevin yeah. Yep, you're there. Sorry, I didn't see. Yes, I was I'm here. Oh, great, yeah. thank you. I, yeah. I, so some are asking, you know, should there be national certification? This may be perhaps some of what the IOM discussion paper was trying to figure out. I mean, it doesn't mean people should be stopped in their tracks because there's some, you know, role and overlap issues here. Um, but to what extent do you feel there's effort and it, that certification and sort of greater clarification of the role in, in some fashion would help. Well, I, I, I have mixed feelings, and I and I would ask Asterell and Shred away in on this as well. But uh, one of the dynamics that we are confronting in California uh, on this whole issue of certification is the degree to which we go down a path which leads to um, uh, a requirement of high higher level education. We have a we have thousands of community health workers engaged in California, and many of them uh, uh, don't have a high school diploma. Uh, and they have a highly complex knowledge base uh, in their community that's, that's, that's tied to the, to the predominant culture in that community uh, that you wouldn't, you wouldn't trade for anything. Um, but they, but it, in, a cert, in, in a certificate process, they may, in fact, be uh, marginalized for that. Um, so, so there's a diet. We, we've got it. What, whatever we pursue has to take into consideration that a lot of different organizations and a lot of different parts of the country. I mean, it's, it's a part of, of being in America. We, we, we have a lot of different ex uh, experimentation going on. Uh, and, um, and in some organizations, there are going to be uh, given what configuration they may have in their teams, different views of what the, the roles of community health workers may be. My, if I have a bias, it is towards uh, really uh, optimizing what they can do outside of the clinical arena in the in the broader population health arena, uh, and that is where there is the least amount of of overlap with the scope of other kinds of workers. Um, but I will, I will note that there are one of the, the dynamics that we have, at least with some organizations, is that there is pushback. There is pushback from the social workers. There's, uh, and there are pushback from, uh, from the MAs and even pushback from the nurses uh, that some of the things identified as appropriately, in my view, in the scope of community health workers uh, is, uh, is in their in their particular wheelhouse. So, so different organizations are have to are in the process of trying to sort through those kinds of dynamics to the degree that we can look at a, a certification process 
that uh, minimizes the kind of marginalizing I'm talking about uh, and provides some flexibility for different organizations to come at this uh, at different ways. And that is to arrive at different team configurations that best take advantage of not only their internal dynamics, but the demographics and geography of the communities that they serve, then I think we're, we're, best, we're best served. Um, I, and I would just know one of the models that is out there for which there is increasing interest is, is known as the hub model of community health workers. And in that model, you have, uh, in essence, community health workers that have a place-based orientation that serve a specific geographic area and that contract with different providers and different payers to, uh, to serve patients. And that really enables them to think and act in more place-based terms, as well as uh, enable the organizations uh, to engage those workers uh, in different ways. So um, a, a lot of this is sorting through the process, um, um, and I'm all for looking at ways in which as we scale up the engagement of community health workers to look at efficient uh, uh, paths to that. But we have to be cautious when we look at uh, establishing uh, national-level standards or certificates uh, for what a community health worker is and is not. I'm not sure we're ready for that. Okay. Thank you, Kevin. I want to have Shreya uh, make a, a comment, and I also want to acknowledge again, don't forget to download this chat, everybody. When you get off the show, you'll be prompted to do so. It will also be posted to IHI.org tomorrow. You are all doing also, in addition to our fabulous guests, you're each doing a wonderful job of answering and providing additional information in the chat, which just shows the caliber of the audience that we have today and what experiences you have. Shreya, any thoughts uh, as you continue to unfold the model at the Penn Center uh, on these issues about role definitions, uh, certification, um, and anything you would like to weigh in on there? Thanks. Yeah, thanks. I, I do. I have actually a probably controversial opinion about certification, um, and, and I think just to go a little further uh, with Kevin's excellent comments, I actually am concerned about um, individual level CHW certification, and I'm, I'm not sure I believe in it. Um, to take a step back, right, what is the intent of certification? Why would a funder or a policymaker want to have certification? It's because they want to streamline outcomes, and you want to be able to say, hey, this is a good quality program, um, or good, you're going to get the, a, a good outcome from this community health worker. But again, if you look at history, it's not the individual, not just the individual community health worker that determines the outcomes of a program. It's those five key elements. It's that program level infrastructure. So it, to me, it doesn't seem to make sense to put a lot of burden just on the individual community health worker and the training for that community health worker without also then, you know, taking a step back and thinking about certifying at the program level, almost the way hospitals are certified by JACO. So, you know, what it might look like is, hey, you know, we certify, you know, Penn Center for community health workers um, to provide community health worker services because they have some guidelines around hiring, they have infrastructure to make sure their CHWs are safe and they have, you know, good documentation and, um, you know, good standardization and uh, supervision, et cetera. So I actually feel like um, if we want to 
get the most out of certification, we might start thinking about program level certification. Interesting. Thank you very much. John, over to you, uh, Gauthier, just for a second. We want to just uh, remind you of something, and then we'll start to wrap up. Go ahead, John. Yeah, thanks. Just uh, want to talk really quickly about a program that we're starting in January to help primary care providers in EHR-based systems uh, settings and settings rethink and re-engineer their current testing systems. Uh, the IHI is offering building reliable systems to reduce delays in diagnosis. Through lectures, action periods, and fac- faculty-led coaching calls, you and your team will learn how to achieve reliable test result management every step of the way. Visit IHI.org slash reliability to learn more about reliable systems and processes and upcoming reliability events like this one. All right. Thank you so much, John. All right. I think what we're a fascinating conversation on the chat and amongst our panelists, there were a couple of other questions we may not be able to really get to today. One of them had to do with sort of community paramedics uh, trying to look at a role that might be emerging there and how to nurture that without uh, in some ways, uh, you know, knocking EMTs and the skills. And I, I think that's an underlying issue in both in enhancing the role and also understanding the value of certain kinds of training, uh, education, etc. I appreciate, uh, Shreya, your your last comments. I think what we're going to do is we're just going to wrap up now because that's what we have to do and I'm sure folks have things to do. Thank you. Um, if uh, we can just, you can keep the chat going, but Darrell, Final thoughts from you. Uh, you talked about the APHA coming up, a report coming out. You've given us a lot of things to point to. Um, what would you say you're maybe most excited about right now in terms of the potential going forward here? Thanks. You know, um, I'm, a, <laughs> uh, I'm a proponent of community health worker-driven, led credentialing or certification um, and that's with the theme of self-determination. I could say more about that, but as one of the people who helped to be part of the team that drafted our statewide certification um, uh, legislation in Massachusetts, I felt that the workforce was a driving force behind it. Therefore, we understood on the ground in Massachusetts what we needed. We felt part of our progress uh, uh, was related to our getting credentialed in our state. Uh, I would say that the, the, this excitement around, this consensus around our core roles and competencies is critical to some of the next steps we're going to take. I think there have been some wonderful uh, webinars around building capacity uh, within the workforce, including with our statewide, uh, local, regional uh, associations, and uh, also, uh, you know, once again, the American Public Health Association meeting is going to be another place where we come together, we build, we grow, we expand, and we truly have to continue to educate others. Um, some of the comments on the call, I, I wondered, you know, some of the evidence that I know of and some of the things I've seen, I wonder how widely that's shared with some, and I think we have to do a better job with that. Thank you. Darrell, thrilled uh, that you could be part of the program. Uh, Next time we'll we'll bridge this hour between uh, Cambridge and Worcester and get you in here. But thank you so much uh, for your time today. Uh, Shreya, some final thoughts from you. No, I think that this is a tremendous uh, moment of opportunity. It's so exciting to see um, how many people are on this call and just the level of enthusiasm and all of the, the questions. Um, you know, when I uh, wake up in the morning, I think that the thing that motivates me is for uh, us as a nation to make use of this opportunity moment. I think community health workers, um, your time is here and is, um, it's going to happen thanks to the work of people like Darrell and Kevin 
Um, so our job now is to make sure that we capitalize on this opportunity and create programs that deliver the results that we're looking for for high-risk patients. Okay, thank you very much, Shreya uh, Kangobi. Thanks so much for your time and all the preparation for today's show. Kevin, you get the last word, I guess. Are you there? Did we lose Kevin? There he is. I still see him. I see his face. All right. Kevin was, believe it or not, amazingly, he was driving. Uh, I, there he is. Go uh, ahead. <laughs> I'm here. I'm sorry. I had myself on mute. Um, uh, <laughs> and I'll be very brief. Look, I, I, I want to thank uh, Maj and IHI for their leadership in convening this. Um, I, like Shreya and Darrell, are quite excited about the opportunities that are before us uh, and uh, and by the interest that's clearly reflected in the participation of this forum. Uh, it is clear to us and increasingly to our colleagues in the field that community health workers are absolutely key to the kind of transformation that is and needs to occur in our healthcare delivery and finance system. Uh, so let's continue. I would, I would offer a uh, a basic saying in line with Darrell's point, uh, nothing about me without me. Uh, let's make sure as we develop these these efforts that we are directly engaging our colleagues uh, who are community health workers in the design uh, and the implementation of these important processes. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Kevin uh, Barnett, for being uh, with us as well. Your expertise and broad view of many of these issues is so helpful. I noted in the chat that somebody was wondering whether all these roles uh, are actually adding to some confusion for patients, and that may be one thing that we can add into our further discussions is how what are we learning about how patients are experiencing uh, help from patient navigators, community health workers, and any of the other versions of this and titles that we've been hearing about. Well, you've been a fantastic audience, uh, matched by our wonderful guests, and we've all really, uh, we're very much looking forward to this discussion, and we do hope to return to it. So thank you. Next up on WIHI on October 29th, we're going to talk about how healthcare organizations can create equity in the community. And as Darrell was saying, uh, certainly community health workers are part of that agenda. Very, very interesting discussion we're going to have. Uh, look at the uh, program link on that. It's on IHI.org right now. Um, we'll hope you'll tune in again. A reminder, you can download the chat and all the slides when you log off today. We also always appreciate if you could fill out a brief survey. We want to know what we did well, what we could do better, um, and just how to continue making this a vibrant uh, forum for discussion. All the elements from today's show will also be up on IHI.org by tomorrow morning. Any questions whatsoever? you can email info at IHI.org. Feel free to suggest future show topics. We have a great group of people who help make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, Caroline Claxton, and Haley Ladd. And it's my privilege, as always, to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, this has been a terrific discussion today. I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good afternoon. Thank you.